Today on episode number 322, Shantae Brown-White joins me to talk about helping students to thrive. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest is Shantae Brown-White, and she was introduced to me through my partnership with the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. AQ's courses and community site feature many of teaching and learning's top experts, faculty developers, and practitioners to showcase evidence-based teaching. Shantae Brown-White, PhD, is a professor in the Department of Mass Communication at North Carolina Central University, where she also serves as the coordinator of the Women's and Gender Studies Program. Throughout her own educational journey, she has been influenced by many great teachers, the ones who made the most impact demanded a standard of excellence, yet were nurturing enough to help cultivate the standard when she fell short while believing in her abilities. Dr. White has used that same approach to cultivate a standard of excellence for her own students, which you'll hear about in this forthcoming interview. Dr. White exhibits creativity in the classroom to engage students, making the course topics relevant to everyday life. Dr. White has created multiple courses which examine popular culture and the construction of race, gender, and class, including The Urban Narrative and HBO's The Wire interpreting Tyler Perry, Black Women in Film, and Media Images of Black Women. Shantae, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I was so glad to be connected with you through AQ, and I'm always especially interested in hearing about someone's journey into teaching. Could you tell us about when in your life you first started to think of yourself as a teacher? Hmm. Well, I probably would start in graduate school. So I decided to go to graduate school when I realized my senior year, well, maybe my junior year, that the Christmas breaks and Thanksgiving breaks and spring breaks and summer breaks were about to come to an end. And I decided, well, you know, I think this graduate school thing seems like a nice option. And then, of course, as a TA, so of course, my first year as a TA, I assisted a professor with a large lecture class. And then the second year, I actually had my own class. And I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. I didn't really go to graduate school to think about going into the academy. I just went to graduate school because, you know, I wanted to, to extend those breaks. And I thought, okay, I feel pretty comfortable doing this. And I think I have a natural ability for delivery. So that's not a hard thing for me. What I didn't realize was that (laughs) delivery is only one thing. You know, there's also pedagogy. There's also approach. And so I guess when I did, I start really thinking probably as a young tenure track professor that I really start thinking about my approaches to teaching. 
What do you remember about those early years of teaching? Uh, something that maybe you failed at at the time that you still carry with you as a treasure today? Hmm. Well, I think even as a young, I think I was a tenure track um, professor at this time. And I remember that so my background is communication. And so one of the first things for comm studies is you teach public speaking and pretty much you could teach public speaking. You know, once you have it down pat, I, I probably never had to look at a textbook. And so one time I really was kind of teaching without the textbook. And so while the chapters coincided with what was on the syllabus and what the students were supposed to be learning, another thing I realized is many students don't read, um, <laughs> that I had the student that was reading and he was like, he kind of challenged me of, where are you getting this information from? Because this is not what we read in the book. And so that really kind of convicted me about just being prepared. I think when I first started teaching, I was really nervous. I was nervous every morning when I went in. I had early morning classes. But once I realized that students, I was always going to be one step ahead of them because many of them did not read the textbook. So if I just had that, then that was enough. But I really was called early on on the carpet when it was like, yeah, you really haven't prepared as you should. Now, was I teaching him something wrong? No, it just didn't coincide with that particular textbook. So it just really made me think about being prepared for everything that I do. So I never want to step into a classroom and not have a plan, not know where I'm going, not to have read what I had assigned the students to read. And so that probably was a big lesson early on. If you're talking to someone who is relatively new to teaching, would you tell them that there is such a thing of being overprepared? Is there a way to, to go the other direction in error? I probably would say no, but that's just me because mm -hmm. I do like to be prepared. But I would say the only time being overprepared kind of can be problematic is when you're glued to the script. So some things, things happen in class that are organic. And I'm not talking about like a class trying to hijack, you know, the conversation because they don't want to do something. But sometimes you have to go with that. Sometimes you also have to go with, hey, they don't really understand what you're talking about here. So let me back up. Um, yeah, that direction was really clear in my head, but on paper, it didn't translate that for half of the class. So yeah, half the class got it. The other half did not. Well, I have to stop and do that, to stop and address that. So I think the only time you really can be overprepared is when you are just too glued to whatever it is that you set out to do for that particular day. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think back to you know, many, many faculty that I have worked with, there is that fear of, oh my gosh, what if I get asked a question and I don't know the answer to it? And at least in the people that I've worked with and in my own experience, as you gain additional knowledge and you gain additional experience, I find that that, that fear really, at least for most of the people I've talked to, pretty much goes away entirely because you kind of start to realize you could never know all the questions and to, to become more interested and curious about the questions that you don't yet know. And that, that to me helps you be more comfortable going away from that script because the more we learn about our disciplines, the more we realize we still have to learn about our disciplines and that they're really Absolutely. still interesting to us as professionals. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I probably was kind of released from that early on, but I definitely had to be released from that. I started teaching media law and my background really is not law. In fact, I had to take over for a professor in the middle of the semester and was like, what, why'd you pick me? I mean, the last time I 
dealt anything with media law was 1992 when I actually took it. And, you know, heavens knows that, you know, lots has happened within the last 20 years that would be different. And so that particular class, you know, students are always like, but what about this? You know, they're always coming up with scenarios. And I have no problem. And even earlier than that, when someone would ask me something, I say, you know, I don't know, but I'll get an answer for you and I'll have it when I come back. And so that's very freeing. And I think that students appreciate that. I think that they appreciate someone saying, I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out for you. And so I'll come back and I'll say, hey, this is what I found out. Or sometimes you even might even challenge the class and say, let's all look that up. You had a, some feedback from a student that started out as a compliment and that you started to interpret a little with a little bit more nuance. What was it like when you had a student tell you she's a textbook with a smile? Oh, I thought she was saying I was boring. You know, so. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> no, and no, and I don't think that she really meant it in a negative way, but I mean, I I wasn't very engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought teaching was just going over what was in the textbook. So you read it, and now I'm just going to tell you everything that you read. So, I mean, I didn't take it as, you know, I've gotten definitely teaching evaluations where, you know, they really were going for the juggler. I don't think that she was doing that, but it really did make me think like, huh, well, what can I do? And then fortunately, I had some really great mentors with teaching and research along the way. And one of the first peer reviews that I had as a tenure track faculty, that person, she didn't say that, but it resonated like, okay, you're just regurgitating what was in the book. Let's find some. And then she shared some activities that we can do. And so the one of the best ones was a nonverbal scavenger hunt. So I taught interpersonal communication. And so you had to have these like 20 things that you go off on campus and go find some people like, you know, go stand really close to someone and record their reaction or, you know, go smile at someone and see what their reaction is. And the students had so much fun. So would they remember that activity? And then, of course, you do have to make sure that they are connecting it to the theory or me just telling them what they already read. So that definitely, but those two experiences really helped me to think about how to be engaging and how to have students apply the material that we were discussing more than just me telling them. So, you know, and a lot of times as we were growing up, you had professors, I mean, I had great professors, but the formula was I lecture and you take a test, the test might be multiple choice and you write a paper. So that's what I started out doing as well. And I've evolved light years beyond that now. I mean, I think those things all have appropriate places, but there's so many other ways that we can get students to learn and to remember and to experience and process and think about and apply and analyze and all of those things beyond kind of the traditional methods that many of us were exposed to. When I hear stories like the one you just shared, Shantae, it reminds me so much of the expression of Having it, yes, in our head, which textbooks can often give us things in our head, but being able to also hold things in our hearts. So really engaging our sense of meaning, of purpose, of significance, and then to translate that to our hands. You know, what what can I actually do with this learning? Right. And, and for so many of our students, this shows up of it not being enough to just know stuff but actually wanting to be part of justice in the world in some way. What have been your experiences with students that you're recalling now around them really getting sort of caught on fire with whatever it is that they're discovering in your class? Oh, wow. Well, one that just 
automatically comes to mind is as I took over the media law class, one of the things that I introduced was developing protests. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pick an issue, you're going to find a three-pronged way to protest, whether that's collecting, you know, signatures. And of course, they didn't really understand. I really meant like, go find out how many signatures you actually need. So you need to go find that out in the state. You know, not just the 24 people in this class and, you know, maybe your roommates, but, you know, some other people, you know, is it letter writing to legislatures, to campus personnel, whatever their their topic was going to be. And that was, I got some really interesting topics about just being able to design a protest. And of course, you know, media law is really focusing on how journalists are not going to get sued. But a part of that is really understanding our First Amendment rights as citizens, our, our rights to petition, our rights to protest, our rights to speak. And that first time I did that assignment, it was just awesome. It really was. Now, learning thing, a learning curve is you can't always repeat it. So I was like, oh, this is a winner. I not, you know, I change out my assignments, you know, frequently, but I really enjoyed that first class. Second semester, I used it. It was fine. And then by the third time, I was like, yeah, we need to get rid of this because this is no longer working for whatever reason. So some things work with some students, some semesters, it, it clicks. And then other times, it doesn't. And so I really haven't done that in a while, but just in this whole where we are in our nation, where we are and looking at our president, who I often wonder, like, do you have anyone to tell you about the First Amendment mm-hmm. that you understand that, you know, that I haven't decided what I'm going to do in the fall, but definitely want to address just First Amendment rights so that we understand as U.S. citizens, what rights do we have? I had a similar assignment that I gave a couple of years ago, maybe two and a half years ago or so, and it it failed abysmally. And part of it was because I was trying to do too much. So I really recognize if you're at least I only have my failure to go from, <laughs> but but I, I just see that if you're not willing to really focus on something and slow yourself down, because for me, they just didn't have enough background where they had already done the research. It was like business ethics. So I wanted them to either plan a protest or to write letters. And I forgot I had some other options as well, but really just a means to express to either celebrate something the company was doing around you know, a lot of social enterprise and and that kind of thing, or something that they wanted to criticize. And you know, when you just know you're just ha- they're just jumping through the hoops. And they're like, "Do we have to mail this?" <laughs> and you know, right. I was like, I was like, "Oh, you got you can't like you can't." Even though I believe in that, I did not allow enough preparation to really be able to do it sufficiently. So you really inspire me on this one. Yeah. And I mean, when they get it, it's so awesome. I think on one of the other assignments I can think of, um, I taught a women in communication course and they actually had to do oral narratives. So they needed to interview women who were, or I think we did have one person who had retired who were working in the media industry and they had to be African-American women or women of color. And then how did they negotiate race and gender in that particular industry? And I mean, the students, I mean, and so they were, you know, calling people that they see on TV or you're on the radio or, you know, somewhere else. Some of them were like PR um, personnel. But I had one student that said, I, and this is her, maybe her second class in mass communication. And she's like, 
I have learned so much in this class. And one, I don't think I want to do this because they don't get paid a lot. So I was like, oh, that's not what I wanted you to take away. But, <laughs> but really understanding women in communication, just all women, period. And then when you add the layer of race onto that, what that might actually mean. But that was another one that was really exciting because they, and then with that, they had to actually present that those oral narratives at a research symposium, they all chose to do a poster project, poster presentations. But then we also organized for our department a panel discussion with some of the women. And so we had a panel of about nine women who came on campus and shared their experiences based on those oral narratives. So it was really great. It must be absolutely wild for you now looking back to both of those class experiences and wondering what lingers in your students' minds, hearts, and hands from what you taught them. That's wild. I mean, just you're mentioning already how much has changed in our country. Yeah. And every once in a while, you get something from a student that kind of out of the blue. I had, and I teach at an HBCU, and so I had a white male student take um, Black women in film. And, um, you know, he was a good student. He can write, and he asked me to write this recommendation, and he just shared how much he had learned, like he had not even considered the experiences of black women. Like that just hadn't been, you know, something he really considered or even studied, but he had learned so much. And so I would just hope, you know, especially now in our climate as we are looking to be more affirming of everyone and to, you know, just deal with racism and how people contribute to it, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally, that that student would be able to take that experience. If he has no other experience, I mean, he went to an HBCU, so I'm sure he picked up some other things. <laughs> um, but just the note that he wrote me afterwards, it, it, well, I guess it was a semester after, was very moving. And I, I appreciate hearing from students, especially when they're really kind of out of the blue like that. You are someone who continually strives to develop professionally. And I'm curious about your motivation around that constant, you know, desire to refine and improve. Well, I wish I really could say that I'm all about students first, you know, making it student-centered, but it really keeps me from being bored. Mm -hmm. um, I think the students benefit from that, that I'm always going to do something and think about something in a fresh way, but I don't want to do the same thing I was doing 20 years ago. I don't want to do the same thing I was doing 10 years ago. And so I just always am looking for new ways to incorporate. I mean, even transitioning in this COVID, I mean, I'm going all online next semester, not necessarily looking forward to it because I do do a lot of collaborative work, but it also is going to be a lot easier to do the collaborative work online than, you know, I don't know how we're going to put people in groups, you know, face to face. You'd be yelling at your group, you know, across mm -hmm. the, the room. But I would have to say, first and foremost, is probably so I don't get bored and uninterested. And I think that that helps me to have passion about what I'm teaching and new assignments and new approaches. And then I just want to do things with excellence. So the same excellence that I am expecting and demanding and helping to cultivate in my students, I need to be able to give that to them. And if I'm given the same warmed over things that I've been doing for the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I might need to rethink what my definition of excellence is. I have heard about one of the approaches that you have cultivated over some time. I know this is not as easy as it's about to sound <laughs> called voice and choice. And it's part of your layered curriculum. Could you describe that to us and a little bit of the background, how you happened upon it? 
Oh, well, first of all, we have an outstanding, amazing coordinator for our Office of Faculty Development and offers all kinds of, you know, workshops and I'll go to all of them. But this one, it's kind of funny because when she kind of, I didn't go to the workshop, but I was like, oh, I, I want to try this. And I went and, you know, did it and incorporated. And she's like, yeah, you just totally missed the mark here. This, you just don't even get it. So the following year, I actually went to the workshop. I was so moved by that. I went and purchased the book of the woman who created it and then revamped my entire introduction to women's studies. And so basically what that is saying with voice and choice is you look at your, you start out with your learning outcome. And then, and so I've had four different units in this particular course. And so with that, you offer students multiple assignments to get at learning those outcomes. So for instance, one of the units might be understanding the development of women and gender studies as a discipline, as well as the women's rights movement. So they might have four or five assignments to choose from. So they had to choose three. And so for instance, one might be make some note cards of significant women in each of the four waves of feminism. And you had to include women of color and you had to make sure that all the waves were done. It was interesting and it's very interesting what students actually choose. So the artsy people really get into making these note cards. And then maybe another one might have been watching some videos on YouTube and writing a summary. Another option, if I was trying to get them to understand the history of women's and gender studies at North Carolina was to research the history. And they had to interview several people who were involved in organizing it. And then another one might be looking at the name, whether it's women's studies, women and gender studies, and how that's uh, evolved, looking at several institutions. And so the students can select that. So that's your C layer. So your C layer is, I can stop at a C, and I can achieve these learning outcomes without having to do anything else. So if I were to take the test today, I can answer those questions. Then your next level is your B level where you're trying to do something with that information. So you might analyze or create or apply. And so I think one of the options was actually to create a marketing campaign for the Women in Gender Studies program at NCCU. So, of course, you had to understand the discipline of women's studies, period, just the evolution of it, and then the history behind it at NCCU, and then you're going to do your marketing campaign. And so the real artsy people do that. I can't really remember what the other option was for that. And so they had maybe two options to choose from from there. And then the final A layer, so that's your B layer. And then the A layer is really kind of giving them a problem that there is no right or wrong answer to. And so in that particular unit, I know they did um, debate. So they had to debate if a women introduction of women and gender studies should be a requirement in the general education elective at NCCU, if that should be a requirement. So it's very interesting what people selected. It was interesting that that gave them the option to work in pairs or groups for a level B and A. For C, they did need to do that one alone. Uh, It was interesting that um, for the A and the B that many, well, the A they had to do. I mean, you can't do a debate by yourself. Um, (laughs) I did put them in teams, but for the B layer, they had the option of working with other people. And I call myself creating something that it's going to be much easier to work with a team than by yourself. But uh, many of them chose to work by themselves. So that was just, it was very telling in terms of what students selected and then how they, when they selected to work with other people. But a lot of the feedback that I got from my informal assessment, not necessarily traditional SRIs, is they talked about how much they learned 
in the class and how much they learned from each other. And that also meant that I had to give up some kind of control because I didn't know what they were going to come back with. So, for instance, with the women who made up the who, the students who selected uh, note cards of the women in each of the waves of feminism, I mean, I teach women in gender studies. I don't know as many women in the fourth wave, which is the wave that we're doing now, as in the first, second, or even third. So I have to take your word for it. So it's almost like you're giving up some control as the instructor as well and really relying on the students to come back with the information. But so many of the students just talked about how much they learned in the class and they learned from each other. We've talked about the idea of agency many times on this podcast over the years. And I still find myself describing it in a way I know is false, as in I give agency to my students. And people are always gently correcting that idea of like, if you give it to them, that means they never had it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Would you speak a bit about your ideal of agency? What does that mean to have agency as a learner? Hmm. Well, I I don't know if I've mastered it really in my other courses because using the layered curriculum and introduction to women and gender studies really showed how much I really don't in the other courses. Mm. We come up, we say, these are the assignments we're going to do. This is how many you have to do. And that's that, you know, if you want to get a good grade. But this one really did show that I was empowering them to have agency. So not only could you choose the grade you wanted, which by the way, most of them attempted to get the A. I had very, very few students that stopped at the C layer or even the B layer. So I was really happy about that. So that motivated people. And people actually did say that. Like it was, well, they said fun, but it was freeing to be able to choose which assignments that they wanted to do. And they could choose an A. And then sometimes life does happen. And so, yeah, in this season, I'm going to take a C on this unit because it was homecoming or because, you know, I was fighting with my boyfriend slash girlfriend. And, you know, if you took a C on this one, but you got A's on the other, you probably end up with an A in the class. So just having kind of an out, I think, or not an out, but an option that really helps people to feel that they are empowered in, in their learning process. And so now that I am going online, I definitely want to figure out how I can do this with media law. It seems very daunting, you know, to come up with multiple, because really you have to have, if you have, I think in the C layer, they had to select from, select three assignments. So that means you at least need to have five in order to make a choice. So coming up with five different assignments to appeal to different people, um, to the tactile people, to the creative people, to, you know, the other people that it takes a lot of thought that goes into that. But once you do it, I mean, I was really excited and pleased with how that class turned out and would love to see that in the rest of my classes as well. The last two semesters, I've been experimenting with high flex and high flex is one of those words that means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. So I'll give you what approach I was using, which would be that any student could choose to, instead of show up in an in-person class, there would be an equivalent assignment or experience that happened at their own pace on mm-hmm. online. So it's not like they're just watching a video of what happened in person, or it's not like they have to join remotely, you know, at the time we were meeting. And of course, the first semester I experimented with it, I, I didn't choose to switch the dimmer switch all the way up. They could do that twice, which felt pretty radical to me. And then I, so I mm-hmm. <laughs> did that in the spring. And of course, as soon as COVID hit, then I was like, oh, well, you could do it as many times as you want for the rest of the semester. And 
it was kind of an amazing thing because of course the students really liked it, but I found it so freeing for me too. So when we, and I like your, your phrasing, when we empower others to have agency, it's almost like it gets renewed for us too in some ways because right. so much of what we do can so easily be reduced to the transactional. It's not at yeah. all what we intend. I mean, for the vast majority of us, I don't think people, that's what they want in their teaching experience, but we build systems and structures that really mm-hmm. reinforce it. Yeah, and I am definitely a person that likes control. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said, when you kind of release it, it's like, oh, okay, well, why did I like control anyway? You know, mm-hmm. I still have some things. So, for instance, with these, they do have deadlines. So, you got to finish the C layer before you can move on to the B layer. Well, not even before you can move on. This is the deadline for the C because now we are moving on as a class mm-hmm. to the C. I mean, to the B. There are some that might be structured in a different way. And I'm like, I can't deal with, you know, because once I've moved on and graded this one particular thing, I've moved on to something else. And so it's very hard for me to go back like, what? This is from four weeks ago. Like, OK, you're still at this layer. So in that sense, I still need to um, maintain uh, some sense of control, but definitely letting that go and kind of letting. A, and I'll say this, a well-designed class can drive itself. So if your objectives are really clear if your assignments are clear, if your readings are really kind of laid out, it really can drive itself and you can and let go. And I, I feel pretty confident that the students walked away knowing the learning objectives and the learning outcomes for that particular course. You mentioned in our conversation before the interview started about being a parent, and you, and I shared, of course, that I am as well. And and it, and it reminds me what you just said about deadlines. With parenting, it's not about having zero boundaries. I mean, there there definitely need to be boundaries in classes, especially around things like deadlines, not completely rigid ones that don't take the learner into consideration. But if you think about the learning process and the iterative ways in which failure, getting feedback, trying again, really contributes in powerful ways to the learning process, then there isn't room for that. Like you said, if we just allow for there to be no deadlines at all, and then, you know, the tendency can often be kind of to snowball. And then that's not real learning that's happening at the end of that term or that semester. Absolutely. And I think because I teach in a mass comm program, I mean, and I had to learn to read for one of the things I did do is revamp all my syllabi um, a few years ago and did the motivational syllabus. I went to um, a Lilly conference and Christine Harrington was presenting and she has a lot of phenomenal things, but created this motivational syllabus. Now my syllabi are like 30 pages because everything is in one document. But the one takeaway that I got from her was really framing those harsh policies positively in offering an explanation. And so my explanation as to why I don't accept the late work, at least for mass comm, is this is a deadline-driven industry. So if you're not ready to go on air at 5.03, there's a dead spot. You know, if you miss the deadline for the record, you know, being finished, you know, and we understand the deadlines do, uh, we do miss deadlines, but I want my students to get in the habit of having a work ethic to show up to class one time and to meet deadlines. But the other thing, because I, you know, that's such a harsh policy, I do have a life happens pass because life really does happen. So, you know, maybe your car didn't start that morning or you couldn't find a parking space or you did have an argument with boyfriend slash girlfriend last night and you just couldn't get to the reading. You can turn in that pass, no questions asked. You're going to get 
you know, what the past allows you to get. So I do try to have some kind of understanding that life really does happen all the while just saying, but there is a standard of excellence that we all should try to strive to meet more often than not. Shantae, before we transition to the recommendations segment, as a fellow music lover, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how music plays into your teaching. Oh, well, this is something I just started this year, this past school year, 1920. And I really started with the intro to women and gender studies. I wanted my daughter to make a playlist that I can play just at the beginning of class as um, students were coming in. And it was women's empowerment. And on the playlist, she put Cardi B's money, which I was horrified. Like, is this like about women's empowerment? But I left it in there. And in fact, I included an assignment around, you know, can Cardi B or Beyonce or, you know, Megan Thee Stallion, are they feminist? You know, so that was one of the assignments they could choose in another unit. And so I played the music. It's nice playlist just of women, women singing about women's empowerment, different, to some extent, different genres, but definitely different decades of music. And the students really kind of liked it. And so then I started doing it for all my classes. So this semester I have my get up and get started music. And so that's what's usually playing. If they have a quiz, like for instance, on media law, they usually had quizzes and the students were always stressed out. I had my kind of classical music playing. I had that classical music playing when they actually took the quiz because they take the quiz first and then they have to take it with the team. So sometimes people finish before, but having that background music going was really nice. And then I had mid-tempo music when they worked in teams. The upbeat music was too much. I can see people really kind of enjoying that a little too much. And so I was like, okay, let me bring that down just a little bit. So I think it was nice transition music and it just kind of set the mood. And I usually would go in and ask the students, do you want to hear old school or new school? And interestingly, they always picked old school. Mm. Um, And my 17-year-old daughter said, but that's probably because they don't think you have good music for new school. So... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Before we go over to the recommendations segment, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. As many of you know, I have written a book about productivity, and it is one of the essential tools in my productivity toolbox. And what it does is it lets SaneBox worry about what's coming into my inbox and sort it out so that it can really suss out and identify the most important messages, and it hides the distractions. The newsletters that, yeah, I like to read them because otherwise I'd unsubscribe, but I don't want them to be interrupting some focused time in my day where I'm trying to work through emails that really do represent commitments that I have to others. So it essentially provides a little do not disturb for me so that I can focus on the most important things when I'm there in email. And SaneBox creates folders when you first set it up and your inbox gets to have the messages that are the most important ones to you. And the distractions get moved over to a folder called Sane Later. As in, I want to look at this later, not now when I'm during what should be a productive time of working through my important emails. And there are lots of other ways that you can use SaneBox to help yourself stay on top of email and let you control it instead of it controlling you. So you can have where I like to use the feature where if I have a message I'm sending out to one or more people and I want to make sure that I get a reply, but I don't want to add that to my task manager. 
So instead, I can just say three days at SaneBox, and if I don't get a reply by then, it'll push that message back and have it get my attention. That's just one of many features of SaneBox. It is very trainable. They talk about if something comes into the folder that doesn't quite work for you, you can just drag it to the folder that you want it to go into in future times. But I have to tell you, though, I really do get it. It gets it right about almost a hundred percent of the time for me. I very rarely have to do that training process, and when I do, it's such a seamless thing. So, if you're interested in finding out more about SaneBox, head on over to sanebox.com/tihe, as in teaching in higher education, and they've got a special plan for teaching in higher ed listeners. You can get their free 14-day trial. There's no credit card required for that trial. And then if you sign up, you can get a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. Again, that is SaneBox.com slash T-I-H-E, an absolutely essential service for me and my own productivity. And I hope you'll give it a try as well. And thanks to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And on a past episode, I recommended this episode of Brene Brown's podcast. Not to worry, I'm not going to recommend it again because I think I haven't ever recommended the same thing twice. I Knock on wood, perhaps I have. But it was an episode I shared about over-functioning and under-functioning during times of stress. And I've thought about it mm. so much since then. And then at the last part of it, the last part of even the title, I sent it to a friend the other day and it talks about cultivating peace. And one of the things I've realized about myself, I've mentioned that I'm serving on our COVID-19 leadership team and have a leadership role as a dean, and then also thinking about my own teaching, that I am getting to feel a little bit, I don't want to sound, I don't want to overdo this, but just feeling a little bit like maybe I'm addicted to that urgency, you know, waking up in the morning and, and feeling like, okay, 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 like what's going to be the emergency that will present itself today? And I thought, I thought, as soon as I sent that to a friend, I thought, well, perhaps you should send it to yourself and think a little bit about cultivating peace. And to me, this can look a lot of different ways in my life. Music really can help me cultivate peace. So I want to recommend actually a beautiful song by an artist I'm not super familiar with, Alyssa Graham, but she had a beautiful song called my love, which I was familiar with, but just not her version of it. But that brought me a lot of peace yesterday. But I also just mostly want to recommend that however it is that you cultivate peace in your life, is that through meditation? Is that through prayer? Is it through music? Is it through walks, yoga, whatever it is to be carving out time in purposeful ways to do that? It is a time of resistance for many of us. It's a time of urgency and a sense of wanting to do well for our students, but it also could be a time for peace. And I know I need to be more purposeful and carving that out in my life. And for anyone who needs to hear that message today, I encourage you to be looking for ways to purposefully cultivate peace in your life. And Shantae, I'm going awesome. <laughs> to pass it over to you now for your recommendations. Oh, can I do two? Of course. Oh, yay. Okay. Well, I'll do my not quite academic. So one of the things that I do miss from commuting, because I had about a 30 minute commute was I just started maybe a year ago doing audible books. And of course, when we, you know, were detained at home, not detained, when we were on our stay at home orders, I didn't use it, but I had just started Tressie McMillan Cotton's Thick 
Mm. And it's essays uh, just about a black woman's experience. And my department chair actually said, oh, you should think about bringing her. And he posted or put an article on my desk or, you know, slid it on my door. And the first thing I read, it's how she opens up the book. And it says, and of course, I'm going to mess it up. So I'm sorry. But basically, I was too thick when I should have been thin to let boys, you know, be able to shine and white girls be able to shine or something to that ex- mm. extent. You know, I was too much for, you know, the white Girl Scouts and so on and so forth that I just was really thick in places where I should have been thin. I know I've messed that up, but that was it. I read that and I said, I put the article down. And I said, let me go get the book. And so I got the book. I had started it probably right before our spring break, which we never returned to campus. And then I said, wow, I need to pick this up and finish it. And so I have been looking at our listening to Audible just kind of at home, which is a little bit different for me because I used to do it in my car. So that's an awesome book. And then my second one, and it kind of goes not necessarily with cultivating peace, but definitely taking care of yourself. Um, I was very much an underachiever and trying to get steps in. My trainer looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, 10,000 steps a day. Like, who can do that? Like, you know, <laughs> on an average day, I'm like, I'm, do- I'm good for 4,000. Well, I have gotten more steps in while I have been at home than in real life. Mm. And that is because I channel my inner Beyonce and just dance. And so that is how I doubled the amount of steps that I've gotten. I haven't gotten to 10,000 yet, but I have gotten to 8,000 several times. Oh, my goodness. That sounds like so much fun. I have to ask about the Tressie McMillan Cottom's book. Does she read it? Is she the one speaking? She is the reader. It is. I am totally a groupie. I'm going to get all her books and then figure out, you know, once we start bringing people on campus, how we're going to get there. She actually is a graduate of North Carolina Central University. And we used to be with English and MassCom. We've since broken up, but I want to get her back to campus because I just absolutely love the book and I love listening to her. I've been able to listen to her podcast a few times. It's on the Luminary Podcast Network, which I don't subscribe to, but you could get like a like a free trial membership. So I certainly have heard her voice before, and I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about what it would be like to hear her voice as she, she reads her own book. I mean, that that book was transformative for me. And I am i don't want to spoil anything because you've got some really powerful stories ahead of you, but I feel like we might have to exchange cell phone numbers and <laughs> and yes, talk yes. and talk after you get through some of those stories because they're still just weighing on me in really powerful and good ways all, all this time later from having read it. Yeah. Oh, you got some good stuff. From ahead Thick of you. or from the podcast? Thick. From the podcast. From Thick, oh, yeah. Oh, okay, awesome. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to use it. I, I don't teach intro to women and gender studies this semester, but I do in the spring. And so I'm like, yeah, let me see how I can put this in here. She talks about a doctor's visit and I just, oh. Yes. Oh, you yes. already know? <laughs> yeah, no, I finished it. So oh, I, did I finish didn't it. Yeah. I thought you said you were still working on it and I didn't no, want to no, spoil no. it for I you. Didn't, I didn't finish it before the, mm. you know, stay-at-home orders, but I said, I just started listen to it around the house so yes oh, I had finished gosh. it, it were you just and I do getting the tissues did. out <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like I have to I have to just do the audible experience for that because I bet it's a whole nother level. Yeah, I wish I read um, Michelle Obama's book, but I would have liked to have listened to that, too. I think that would have been a great experience. Oh, yeah. It's been so fun. The Obamas have both been reading to our kids. They did for PBS. They did some reading 
live over the last few months but even if you didn't catch it live you could always get it on youtube and those have been so much right. fun too it's really yeah. uh, there's a couple with them together and they're just so playful and lovely and it's just oh, so well watch. i'll have to check that out i yeah. haven't seen those <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on teaching in higher ed and inspiring us and helping us think through the aspects of our teaching so we all can just keep getting better at this stuff i really appreciate this conversation with you and so glad to be invited thank you so much Thanks once again to Shantae Brown-White for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I hope you'll all head over to teachinginhighered.com slash 322 to learn more about Shantae. And also, if you'd like to check out SaneBox, today's sponsor, head on over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E. It really is essential in me being able to have some semblance of managing my email and hope you'll give it a try for that two-week trial as well. Thanks so much for listening and thanks for joining me in these conversations about teaching and productivity. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.